0: If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to join me in Galatians chapter 5. As I said a moment ago, we have been engaged in a study on the fruit of the Spirit. And I have, as I have worked through this study, been astounded at the expectation or the reality of willful action on our part. I always lived with the thought that exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit meant that I had to stand quietly by, maybe maintaining some prayer posture, and like an inner light shining from the inside out, the fruit of the Spirit would appear, manifest itself. But as I have worked through this, I have noted that it requires effort on my part In submission to the Holy Spirit. Now, you wouldn't know it as you walked in from your car this morning, but springtime has arrived. And everybody enjoys, except those who have bad allergies, the flowers that arrive in the spring. It's a beautiful time of year. I might say it this universally, everyone loves flowers. But there is a flower that is native to Indonesia. It's built as the world's largest. It can grow to more than six feet tall. In fact, this plant takes nine to 21 months until a bud flowers. Only then will it last for about a week. This flower, however, also has the unusual distinction of being the world's stinkiest flower. A vile scent is emitted from this flower when it fully blooms. One reporter said this, the flower is distantly related to the calla lily. We all knew that. But it looks more like something out of Little Shop of Horrors. It emits an odor that smells like rotting flesh. Hence the Indonesian name Bunga Bankai, or in English, the corpse flower. Another scientist explained this, it has a fetid stench to attract pollinators. It smells like a dead animal so that it might attract dung beetles. All of that sounds good. How many of you would love to stick your face in that bloom and draw a real deep breath in of corpse, rotting dead animal flesh? Here's the reality about that flower, which is the corpse flower. From a distance, it is alluring. It is appealing. It is attractive. It is beautiful. But the closer that you get to it, the more you realize the scent that it is emitting is vile. And rather than being drawn close to it, you are compelled to run away from it. I have found that same thing to be true about me. I have found that same thing to be true about a lot of people. From a distance they look one way, but the closer you get to them, their quote unquote sent, or the actions and attitudes that come from them are repulsive. Might look beautiful, might seem separated, might look righteous, but the closer you get, you find a complaining spirit. A critic's eye. A bad attitude, a compromising lifestyle, a hard heart toward other. What you begin to deduce quickly is you run away. You are repelled from rather than compelled to. And as we study the fruits of the Spirit, and in particular this morning, the fruit of the Spirit that we will engage in, it is basically a scent adjuster. It is helping us to do something that will draw to us, and ultimately to our Lord. Galatians 5. Let's look at this list of the fruit again. In verses 22 and 23, the Apostle Paul writes, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. If I were to simply ask you this question, I think it sets our minds practically down the right path. We can ask ourselves this, spiritually speaking, how do you smell goodness? We have to understand what goodness is. According to Paul's letter to Timothy, and this is a segment of verses most of us are familiar with. The Apostle Paul is warning Timothy about hardship in ministry, about the reality of life in the world in which we live. And he says this, a wicked, a corrupt culture is going to reveal itself by their actions. A wicked and corrupt culture will have these kind of people within it. He writes this in, if my notes will separate, 2 Timothy 3, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. I don't want to work through that list in each instant, but I want you to grasp this. It's interesting. That the mark of a godless culture is that their heart's condition is revealed in their outward action. And that's what it looks like. If I would stay on track, that's what it smells like. The fact is, it's the same for believers. Our heart's condition is revealed in our outward actions. Goodness, as one author described it, is love in action. It is the idea of being good and doing good. It has the specific meaning of being energized, empowered to act in a benevolent way. That word doesn't even really exist in secular Greek sources. It's an incredibly rare word. It's a word that communicates to us believers must carry out goodness like the world has never experienced. Intrinsic goodness producing outward generosity. Our attitudes need reshaping. Our lives need adjusting. Our sense need to change. Goodness, love in action. Now, as always when we study the fruit of the Spirit, we have to begin with this common reality that all of them have together. It is this, God is good. Our study starts with God. The psalmist, writing in the 100th Psalm, gives us a key summary statement written in verse 5, for the Lord is good. Inherently speaking, God is is good. God is essentially good. He is the source of all that is good, of all that is true, of all that is beautiful. Now Jesus will take it a step further for our understanding. Jesus has a man run up to him and he calls Jesus good master. Listen to the response of the Lord. Mark 10 verse 17. And he was gone forth into the way, that is Jesus. There came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God." The psalmist, Old Testament, tells us inherently, innately, the Lord is good. He is the wellspring of everything that is good and true. Jesus addressing this young man who has run to him says explicitly there is only one that is good and the only one that is good is God. Now let's be careful. Jesus is not escaping his deity in this moment. He's not running from the reality. He is basically correcting what this young man has said and causing that young man to think about what he is saying. Jesus is saying in effect, God is good. I am God. So it's okay to call me good master. But there is only one that is good and that is God. The declaration by Jesus makes this abundantly clear. You are not good. And neither am I. Only God is good and we are not good. The Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans 7.18. For I know, he says that with assurance. He speaks this with conviction, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. There are not many ways that I am like the Apostle Paul, but this is one of them. I know the Apostle says, and this is foundational truth, in me that is in my natural state That is how I was born. Innately, we might use that word, essentially, that might amplify our understanding. There is no good thing. Not one fiber of inherent goodness. More universally, it's written in Romans 3. They are all gone out of the way. Together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. There is not one of us that inherently carries out the goodness that we are describing in Galatians chapter 5. Solomon wrote this in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 20. For there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Now it's easy for us to just view the scripture as cynical. Well, the Bible's just cynical. Solomon's a cynical man. The Apostle Paul was just a cynic. What do you mean there's none that doeth good? What does Solomon mean when he has the audacity to say, there's not a just man upon the earth. There's not a man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. What he is saying in there, as you study out the verb, is there isn't one individual who does good all the time and never ever commits a sin. There's not anybody on the face of this earth that inherently is just. There isn't anybody on this earth that of their being produces good works. That's clear. No one can attain sinless perfection. Get this, that's why the gospel is good news. The gospel communicates to us that Jesus Christ, the embodiment The incarnation of good came and sinlessly lived and died on our behalf. God is good and we are not, yet we are compelled to live out goodness. So what's the solution? Well, the Scripture makes something very abundantly clear about our natural state. I don't want to belabor it, but I want you to grasp the turn. Titus, we have already studied this in the fruit of the Spirit, was getting a letter from Paul. Paul writes this to him in Titus 3, 3 4, we ourselves. He's talking about our natural state. This is how we arrive on the scene. Sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived. Serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's our natural state. That's why Paul would write to Timothy, the world that you are engaged in ministering to has all of this fallout. This is what their actions look like. The next word that Paul writes to Titus is important. It's the word, but he says this in verse four, but after that, the kindness and love of God, our savior toward man appeared not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now that word in that verse is important. Titus understands something. Innately, you are not good. In fact, you're not goodness Appeared in your behavior, but the kindness of God arrived on the scene and it was visible. That word, kindness, is in there, is a word only used by the Apostle Paul and it refers to the goodness of God. It can be understood in terms of generosity. The goodness of God generously arrived on the scene and showed up in the gift that is Jesus Christ. His love toward mankind appeared. That word love is interesting. It's where we would get the idea of philanthropy. His goodness And love made an appearance. It's a reference to the incarnation of Jesus Christ who by his mercy gives us salvation. And now he says you are washed. Aren't you glad for modern conveniences? When you wake up on a cold morning, how many of you would like to have to step outside to an outhouse? How many of you did step out to an outhouse? Let's see how far out in Union County do we actually go? I'm glad that we have hot water heaters and showers and bathtubs. Here's a reality, and I'll go back 72 hours. I'd say within the last 72 hours, all of us have had a shower or a bath. All of us are clean, to use a good New Testament phrase, every whit. We're cleaned all over. Here's what the Apostle Paul is writing to Titus. In your flesh, you are inherently bad and it showed up in your actions, but the goodness of God in substantive action showed up on the scene in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, revealed in his philanthropic love, his generosity towards you, and now you are washed. Now you've had a whole bath. It's not just your hands. It's not just your face. You have been cleaned every whit. You've been renewed and you've been regenerated. You are a new creature. Salvation is the moment of your new birth. As a new creature in Christ, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And now, for the first time in your life, you are capable of carrying out goodness As we walk in the Spirit. The only good in me is of God. The only time goodness has ever resided in me. It has been in the form of the Holy Spirit indwelling me at the washing and rebirth of salvation. A new start. I now can carry out goodness. That's the solution. Now I can choose... And I'm doing that on purpose to act in good ways as the Holy Spirit continually prompts me to treat other people as Jesus would. Goodness is love in action, it's substantive action, it's my innate righteousness showing out in external generosity. God is the source of that, God is good. I am not inherently. The solution to my not inherent goodness is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at salvation and now here's a mandate that becomes mine. I own it. I cannot escape it and neither can you. This is a scriptural responsibility that is now laid on your shoulders. It's two words. Do good. There was a day when a negative remark could be made about Christians. It was this. There are a bunch of Do gooders. Well, that's really scriptural, but unfortunately, it has begun to dissipate as a hallmark of Christianity. Do good. The apostles used this phrase frequently. Here's what the apostle Paul says a chapter later in Galatians 6 and verse 10. He says this As we have, therefore, opportunity, let us do good unto all men every kind of man that is out there but especially unto them who are of the household of faith now he'll write this as he writes to timothy and he's writing to timothy about preaching to rich people you say well i'm off the hook you are rich you say no you haven't seen my bank statement i'm not rich you are rich rich when we take the whole globe and the whole world into account, you and I are exceedingly affluent. And here's what Paul tells Timothy to preach to the rich. He says that they do good. That they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. Peter writes this, verse Peter 3, 11, Let him eschew evil, we'll get to that word, and do good. Seek peace and ensue it. James goes so far as to write this in James four seventeen. Therefore, to him or to her that knoweth to do good, which is now you, because I've used three separate scriptural references to tell you to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. This is the practical nature. This isn't just stand by in a prayer pose and the Holy Spirit's fruit will shine like a light from the inside out. This is you must do good. And you might not be living a vile life. You might not be out there in the muck and the mire of this world. You might not be wrapped up in corruption. But here's what James says. If you know that you're supposed to actively do good and you aren't doing it, don't be confused. You are living a life of sin. You might not be corrupt, it might not be sullied in all the things that this world has, but if you know to do good as a believer, and by the way you do, and you're not doing it, then you are living a life of sin. Now to some who are veteran savvy church going people, this may sound like a cheap statement, this may sound trite, but let me say it this way, Christians ought to do good. You and I ought to. To bless and enrich the lives of those that are around us. You and I ought to follow in the way of Jesus, who according to Acts 10.38 went about, and these two words are used, doing good. Now get it, there are those in this world that do evil, right? They outnumber the do-gooders. But that doesn't let us off the hook. There are those in this world who will return evil for evil and some who will even return evil for good. But that doesn't drop the mandate of Scripture that Christians ought to do good. In fact, good works are a spiritual sacrifice that we carry out. Good works is how our light shines and our Father is actually glorified. Well, what does that look like? If I know that goodness is love in action, it's intrinsic goodness showing up in external generosity. If I know that God is inherently good and I am inherently not, but indwelt by the Holy Spirit, I have the capacity for goodness, what does the goodness that I am to do, what does it look like? Well, let's get specific. Let's use these verses. Number one, there's a priority to it. He said that in Galatians 6.10, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto every kind of man that's out there, but especially unto them who are of the household of faith. We should live generously. We should do good. We should continue in all of that to prioritize those that are with us in the family of God. Your doing good starts right here. That's the priority of Scripture. It starts right here in the family Do good unto all men, but especially unto those that are with you here in the family of God. This should be the center of good works. This should be headquarters for good deeds and do-gooders. You should come in here and do actively good. That doesn't allow for spectating. That does not allow for selfishness. That does not allow for seclusion. It demands action. Priority? Do good, especially to those that are in this room. Now let's get really practical. All right, what does the good that I am supposed to do look like? Are you going to start giving quiet seat prizes in the service, pastor? Are you going to give candy out to the people who are best behaved in the service? It actually always goes to the dads that fall asleep, because I can't quite see their eyes, and they sit so still, and they're so quiet. No, Practically, what does good look like? Well, that's what Paul told Timothy. He says this, speaking to the rich. Tell the rich people in your church, tell them to do good. Okay? Tell them to be rich in good works. Okay? Now he says it so plainly. Tell them to be ready to distribute, willing to communicate. Do good. Now that phrase, do good is used where God is seen as doing something. Now, I want you to grasp this because we've been building towards this. God is inherently good. And His inherent goodness produces external generosity. But it's not some vapor. It's not some impossible, ethereal thing to understand. His innate goodness produces substantive action it's not shapeless it's not without form and void it's tangible it's it's addressable it's able to be seen it has shape to it grasp this acts 14 17 nevertheless he left not himself without witness speaking of God in that he did good God is innately good His innate goodness produces substantive action. What is the substantive action? He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. How do I know that God is good? Look out the window. God gives rain. God gives fruitful seasons. God Gives food. God gives gladness. His innate goodness produces substantive action. How do I know that God is good? Well, God gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but would have everlasting life. God's innate goodness shows up in shaped action. As one wrote, We are not called to shapeless good, but to substantive action. So Okay. Do good. You say, be good? Nope. Do good. If you are good, you will do good. I don't get it. It's practical. It has to have shape to it. It has to have substance to it. God is good. Yes, amen. God is good. Well, how do I know that? Well, you're drawing breath. You see the rain. He gave us Jesus. There's Substance to his goodness. And there should be to yours too. You cannot live life as passively as you're living it. You cannot continue to excuse yourself with spectator status. You cannot continue to sit on the sideline as an ingester. You must begin to be an investor. You have to start to do good. And it's practical. What is it? Well, be ready to distribute. Kind heart, generous hand, ready to meet a need, acting toward others in the same generous way that God acted toward you. Think of this, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, that he, ye, through his poverty might be rich. Here's what Paul told Timothy to tell those guys in Ephesus that were attending his church. Be ready to give to meet people's needs. Be ready to help people and to distribute. Be willing to communicate. That's the idea of be willing to share. There's a nearness. There's a brotherhood. This is more than writing a check. This is legitimately coming alongside and meeting the needs. It's practical. You aren't doing good if it has no shape to it. I might say, I love my wife. And you'd say from a distance, Well, show me. And I'd say, Well, hold your horses because my wife does not want me to slide up to her and hold her hand. She'd, What are you doing? Physical touch, not my wife's love language. Put your arm around her, No thanks. Give me space. Give me space. I think, like in public, she doesn't want people to know we're connected. That's what I think. But show me that you love her. Well, I might say kind words that you can hear. I might shower her with gifts. There has to be something tangible to it. Now, you might attend church here. Here you are this morning, and God bless you, stalwart of the faith, the hardiest breed of Christian, a cold, rainy spring-forward Sunday, and look at you. There's probably a crown in heaven. I can't theologically back it, but just for showing up today. Listen, you can come to my mansion and hang out for a few minutes when we get there. You say, well, I'm good, but your goodness has to show up. There has to be something substantive that tells me you're doing good. God is good innately, and I see it. He gives rain and fruitful seasons and food and gladness in Jesus. And what Paul is telling Timothy, preach to your church at Ephesus and say to them, don't just tell me you're good. Be ready to distribute and willing to communicate. Come alongside people, lift them up and meet their needs. Your good has to be shaped. You're not called to some shapeless thing, but substantive action. Peter says it this way, eschew evil and do good. Eschew evil. Does that mean we like take evil and we chew on it? Let's all chew evil. Eschew evil. No, no. Eschew means avoid. Eschew is a very strong word. To avoid something because you despise and loathe it. Like you'll do to me in the lobby on the way out. Eschew, pastor. Eschew evil. What it means is this. Stop doing it right now. Snap your hand back from it like it's hot and it's burning your hand. Snap your eyes away from it like you shouldn't be looking at it. Cover your ears so that you don't take in any of the corruption from it. Eschew evil. Stop it. And in its place, do good. Does that sound like something passive? Does that sound like you just hold your prayer pose and it happens? No. No. It sounds like an action step you and I have to take. It's a deliberate choice. I turn away from evil and I do good. It's not enough to just turn away from evil. I must do good. I'm not essentially good. In my flesh there dwelleth no good thing. But God is good and through the shed blood of Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, I now have capacity For goodness, but I must choose to do good under the dominion of the Holy Spirit. Goodness is a fruit of the Spirit. In effect, I'll go back to where we began. It's how we smell. I'm a Christian. The world might look at you and they might see a Christian. The world might look at you and just see a conservative. The world might look at you and see a separatist. But they got to come up close. And when they come up close, what do they smell? Is it something that attracts them to your Father which is in heaven? Is your action glorifying the name of Jesus Christ? Paul wrote this to the believers at Thessalonica. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. We should be known by our good deeds, by our goodness. Here's the prayer of Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1. We pray always for you. That our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. What he's teaching us there is the source of goodness is God. Paul is praying to God for goodness. For the goodness of the people of God, which is supplied by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, there has to be an end game. There has to be an end game for this. What is the end game of me doing good? Here it comes, 2 Thessalonians 1.12. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Graceway Baptist Church, that's a group of Christians. Well, how do they know? Well, pretty sure there's a cross on the building somewhere. Okay. Now, I don't see that you're wearing a uniform. Now, I would that everyone would market and brand Graceway everywhere. Just wear it all over. Tell everybody to come here. But you don't look like a Gracewayer. In fact, you look like a lot of other people that I see out in public. I don't mean that negative, I just mean it as a reality. You just look like people that I run into. Every... How does anybody know that you're one of His? How does anybody know that you belong to Jesus? By how you, quote unquote, smell. By the good that you are doing. And the fact is, in you, don't think I'm telling you to sharpen up your personality. It's not about who you are. Essentially, there's nothing good in you. But he is essentially good, and in Jesus Christ we have salvation. We're washed, renewed, regenerated, new beginning, new creature, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have the capacity for goodness, and now we must do good. It's how we smell to the world around us, it's the only way they know. Now, I know you think to yourself, well, if I do good, there's nobody left to do good to me. There's plenty. You can't seclude yourself. You can't let yourself off the hook. You, yes, you have to do good. Would you please bow your heads for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is GraceWay Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.